Anagarika Munindra, who we used to refer to as Munindraji, was an Indian teacher who many of us studied with, Carlo and I did. He was my first Vipassana teacher. And apparently it was common to ask people when he first met them, uh, why do you want to practice Vipassana meditation? And my answer, not too creative, but it was true. Uh, I want to get to know myself. And he said, oh, okay, sit down and take a look. That's it. That's what we're doing here. We need apparently an elaborate theatrical support system and a whole uh, corps de ballet of supporters and props and to keep us here with ourselves, cutting off all the escape valves, very little talking, reading, no reading, no writing, no arithmetic. And so we're stuck with ourselves for a number of days. The silence just intensifies that. What I'd like to do this evening is say a few words about self-knowing um, and use it as an opportunity to provide us with a framework for our practice for this week. Repeating some of what was said this morning, where the instructions were laid out in a, in a just a bare way, um, going, going into it in a little bit more detail. Uh, I like the term self-knowing rather than self-knowledge although I use that too, we all do. Um, the self-knowing, uh, which is a lot of what uh, our practice is about, is a verb, it's something you do. Self-knowledge sounds like something you accumulate, and it can be, so that you fill up uh, spiral notebooks after spiral notebooks of your insights. I don't think that's what was meant, because as useful as that might be, uh, by and large, that just contributes to the story of me and my life, starring me, written by me, <laughs> edited by me, published by me, sold and bought by me, <laughs> and most of all, reviewed positively <laughs> by me. So the practice can become an endless elaboration and refinement of that story. And there can be practical things that are helpful as you learn uh, about yourself in just an ordinary way, just this ordinary way. But I think uh, what is meant is a little bit more complicated. Um, and it's something that each one of us has to do for ourselves. There's no, no way out on this one. Many of you know Narayan Liebenson-Grady, who teaches here and at CIMC. And years ago, uh, she was doing three-month retreats, and finally her father couldn't stand it, and he said, because he wanted her to spend more time with the family, and said, uh, what do you do on those three months? Why do you go? And she said, well, I want to get to know myself. And he said, oh, why didn't you tell me? I can tell you anything you want to know. <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, this is something that uh, each one of us has to know in the moment as we live out our life. And then, in a sense, it's dated. As soon as we know it, it's already filed away with Christopher Columbus and the dinosaurs. It's not, not much use anymore. It's in that moment so that 
the learning and the living happen together. It's not that uh, sometimes reflecting isn't useful. Of course it is. And I would say at the beginning of practice, a lot of what we might call self-knowing would be familiar. That is, what you would learn, whether you intend to or not, would be psychological clarifications of the way you live, of your fears, your uh, loves, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 uh, sorrows. And that's useful, and that comes up all along the way, no matter how many years you've been practicing. But I would say that as the practice ripens, it's less and less about that. So self and knowing. Self is a word that is used to mean almost anything. Uh, if it's with a big S, it can be it. If it's with a small s, it can mean this is why you're not experiencing it. Um, and maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't exist, maybe it sort of, kind of exists. It exists, but in a very different way than we thought it existed. So the self is pointing to this. This is a good word for it. Even the Buddha used that. This is finally has to do with the immense significance of the present moment. It's just uh, inexhaustible, the present moment. It's all there because that's all there is, is present moment present moment. And we need language to point to where you look, and we look at what we can definitely say, call self, meaning me, which is ordinary language to just get so we can communicate with each other. And the knowing, self-knowing, uh, that part is crucial because what does it mean to know anything? And here, knowing doesn't uh, simply mean conceptual understanding, as it often does mean. It doesn't mean intellectual or conceptual understanding, although that can be part of it, of course. We study books, and you listen to talks like this. But if they're Dharma talks, and if they're Dharma books, their only purpose is to point you towards your own experience, because freedom comes there. So that self-knowing is the first step towards the development of wisdom development of genuine compassion and freedom. So it's very, very important. The knowing is something that perhaps we refine for the rest of our life. It's clear seeing. It's bringing into focus. And to begin with, we're bringing the breath into focus. Perhaps we're bringing our feet into focus as we do walking meditation. Maybe we'll start to include something else, bring our knee into focus then a mood into focus. But before long, you'll see that what it's about is to bring our life into focus so that we can see it clearly. Again, not on some big canvas as an abstract notion, but the living of it as we're living it. The knowing is ongoing. It's non-accumulative. That you can't pitch tent anywhere and say, I've, I'm done. This is it. In terms of, let's say, when we begin. And that includes investigations and reflections, and all of that contributes to what we're doing. Well, a lot of what makes up our practice is re refining this ability to see, to bring into focus. Because if you can't see, then you can't learn. Or let's put it not in such absolute terms. Uh, our learning is very dependent on what we can 
what we can see. See here being a metaphor for not just visual. Provides us with a basis for at least the possibility of learning. And in this case, what we're learning is how to live. We wouldn't be here if we totally felt we knew, know exactly how to live. We, we've mastered that. We just want to master Vipassana now. <laughs> I think it goes the other way around. Vipassana is designed to help us master living or at least to, to begin to learn how to live. And so <clears throat> when we begin with even a simple in and out breath, When we begin with even a simple in and out breath, uh, whether we call it samadhi practice or samatha practice, coming back to that object again and again and again, as is very common in our practice. Many of us have put, probably done thousands, hundreds of thousands of breaths by now. And I'm sure you've seen that that simple, not always easy exercise seems to clear the mind more and more as all the energies that are scattered in the mind get focused around the breathing. That energy that is wasted, in a sense, running here, running there, is now brought together, unified around the breathing and the knowing, and the mind feels different. It's a different instrument altogether. It's more workable. I would say it's fit now to do some knowing. Now, you can try to do self-knowledge with just an untrained mind, and of course, we have to do the best we can, and I think everyone has been doing that. If you've never heard of meditation, most, many, I don't know, I think, for all I know, every human being is trying to understand how to live, trying to understand themselves the best that they can. But I would say, to begin with, the instrument that we have to work with is rather crude, it would be as if you have eyeglasses that are not the right prescription, or no eyeglasses, and you don't even know you need them. You think you're seeing, and what you're seeing is essentially your own projections, which we attach to and take for reality. And so little by little, what we're doing is refining this capacity to be able to see clearly. And so the self-knowing process has begun in the Samatha practice, in fact, every moment of mindfulness contributes to that. Each step that's carried out mindfully is useful. Each sound that's heard, each bite of food that's tasted mindfully, uh, all of that is a useful and valuable way to use your time. In the Buddhist way of looking at things, you're planting seeds. In addition to the value in the moment of attending to what's happening, the seeds that you're planting are for, to encourage, to, to increase the likelihood of more mindfulness in the future. That is, the more you do it, the stronger it gets, the more reliable and steady it gets, the clearer it gets, the more in focus we can bring whatever it is we're tending to into, we can bring it into focus. And so that's a lot of what we're doing, and you all know that, you've done lots of it. The value of developing this ability to collect the mind, for it to be more calm, more steady, 
sometimes one-pointed. It's an invaluable human skill. If we, if we didn't do anything else, it would still be extraordinarily helpful. Not only do we feel all kinds of energy come from it, there are health benefits. The mind becomes stronger. What you have to work with in, in life is improved just by it being more concentrated. We also have a refuge. That is, when you get good at uh, dropping into or, let's say, becoming absorbed in the breath or whatever other object, metta or an object itself, a visualization, uh, sometimes life is a bit much. It's so oppressive. And even the most motivated and well-meaning of us need a break. We can't look at what's happening directly. We know we can't and we give it a salute. It's not denial or repression. Thank you very much. And we go to the breathing. And if that practice is strong, then you have a place to enter into and to refresh yourselves, to uh, revive your spirits, to strengthen yourself, and then once again enter into your experience. In Thailand, they, in the forest tradition, they'll sometimes talk about you can have a, a bamboo house or a wood house or a brick house, sort of each one is stronger. Uh, they'll talk about if you have no house, that's a person where the, whose mind is not trained at all. It's like being homeless, not willingly perhaps. You're vulnerable to the elements, to thieves. For most people, being homeless is, is difficult. And as you develop this, there's a place that you have where you can come to with practice at will. It really becomes something that you can drop into and, and use in a skillful way. Very, very helpful. You also weaken a lot of the destructive tendencies of mind, the afflictive tendencies of mind, by not nourishing them. Those moments that are tending to the breathing or whatever object you've taken are also moments where you're not caught in the content of your mind, furthering that, deepening that, and increasing the likelihood of that tendency to get stronger, a tendency that has not been helpful. Okay, the second aspect of our practice, as you all know, which was mentioned this morning, uh, this is one way to practice. It's not the only way, but on this retreat, it's the way we're going to be practicing, and that is uh, to release your grip on the breath and to open the field of attention. And that can be, it's sometimes called free attention or open attention or choiceless awareness. In this tradition, it's, those names are used. And here now, it's a, a different quality. We still need attention. That never goes away as something valuable. But now it's expanded. It's not limited to the breathing. And if we use a term like choiceless, we mean it in the sense of um, no agenda. You drop any plans of what should be or what to attend to. And you sit and you're available and receptive to what is, just what's there. And that's a different kind of mind. The first mind picks one thing out of the entire universe, like the breathing, comes back to that again and again and again. Some people love that. Can't get them out. Can't get them out of that little house that they build. But vipassana is not just about 
a bliss, bliss of the mind or, or the body. Uh, it has to do with insightful seeing, with understanding. And so at some point, there's a need to look at your experience, the whole mind-body process. In choiceless awareness, if you drop any programs for what should be there, it's also choiceless in the sense that whatever turns up, the challenge is to meet it without judging it, without making a choice, like I like this, I want it. I don't like that, I don't want it. But rather to uh, be able to receive what's there in a non-judgmental way, to observe it carefully. Now this ability to observe, the refinement that I mentioned, which goes on and on, complete observation, I'm using a language that I'm at home with, but uh, perhaps it will resonate with you, Complete observation has no I in it. I don't mean the physical I. I mean it has no me in it. It's just clear seeing. seeing. Now on the way to that, we know that there is more self-consciousness, the so-called observer, the meditator, the yogi. Not that that's useless. In fact, we all start there of necessity. But that seeing is a bit clouded to some degree at first by our psychological tendencies. And little by little, we start observing them, and they fall away. The mind starts to empty itself of its own content, the memory of its own sorrows that are there. They start to fall away through seeing. But there's another uh, filter that obscures clear seeing, and that's the self-consciousness of the meditator, the observer. Something separate that's doing the mindfulness, that's doing the looking. You can't will that out of existence. You can try, but then you create another me that's trying. But what happens with practice is that sense of separateness of the observer withers. It gets weaker and falls away. And sometimes you just find just this moment of just seeing, just hearing. And it feels wonderful, and you know it's different. Maybe it lasts for 10 seconds. But once you taste it, it becomes easier to taste it again, for it to return, for us to have access to it. This ability to see everything just as it is, that is, this, to, to stay with it in this choiceless way, to stay with this as just this, to stay with that as just that, and this and that keep changing. They keep coming and going. This is, comes down from the time of the Buddha. Let me... Uh, read to you, uh, I think, a famous quote. It's not only in Vipassana circles. I know in Zen we heard it a lot. It was used in, uh, in terms of satori, that is, clear seeing was. This comes from the Bhaya Sutta. Bhaya was uh, someone who thought he was an arhant, thought he was fully enlightened, but then it was put into question by someone who doubted it. And then he went to the Buddha he realized that he wasn't, and he wanted help. And the Buddha, after avoiding him a bit because he was so insistent and wanted it right now and quickly, the Buddha finally says, Then, Vaya, you should train yourself thus. In reference to the seen, there will be only the seen. In reference to the herd, only the herd. 
in reference to the sensed, only the sensed, in reference to the cognized, only the cognized. That is how you should train yourself. I don't think I, there's more, but I think that, that's enough for this evening. What the Buddha is, is suggesting is uh, in this just seeing, just listening, uh, you're not identifying with what's happening. You don't regard it or take it to represent you or me. You don't use it to, in a sense, create that sense of self. It's just what it is. Now, that is something that is, I'm not being merely poetic or uh, mystical. It's an actual experience where the self-consciousness falls away and everything is just what it is. So, uh, in Zen, for example, sometimes they will talk about seeing your true nature as being that, or as people sometimes think that uh, kensho is a term used by, in Japanese uh, teachings, seeing into your true nature, your original nature. Uh, and the mind, up until quite a bit of training, tends to always objectify things and make them into representations. So you think as if my true nature will be something I see out here. Oh, wow, there it is, my true nature. But the true nature is in the seeing. There's just the seeing. That's it. In the hearing, there's just the hearing. Okay, I don't want to spell that out. I hope it's pointing in the right direction for you. Um, Lin Ji, a very great Chinese master, put it this way, and uh, he had a wonderful way in dialogue and also a must have had a great sense of humor. At any rate, people wanted to know about are there any super, super normal powers that you can attain in Zen? Wanting you know, psychic stuff, talk to the dead, past lives, all that. And Lin Chi says, the six super normal faculties of the enlightened one are the ability to enter the realm of form without being confused by form, to enter the realm of sound without being confused by sound, to enter the realm of scent without being confused by scent, to enter the realm of flavor without being confused by flavor, to enter the realm of feeling without being confused by feeling, to enter the realm of phenomena without being confused by phenomena. Uh, it's saying the same thing that the Buddha was saying. Everything is what it is. Don't make it into anything, particularly don't make it into you. When you do, you will suffer. So, uh, so now we're with choiceless awareness. Let's call it that for the moment. And the instructions are, when the mind feels that it's settled down, you have some calm, perhaps some tranquility, perhaps the body is a little bit more relaxed, then release your attention from this exclusive hold on the breathing. And rather, open it up and be with what's there, as I've been saying. As you do that, things are coming and going, coming and going. And the challenge is to be fully alert in this moving field of objects or even no objects, like silence. Now, 
for many people, using the breathing as a kind of um, vehicle to launch you into uh, pure or true choiceless awareness. In real choiceless awareness, there are no choices. There's no, nothing in particular that stands out over and above anything else. But the breath is almost there because it's happening all the time anyway. And so you can use it uh, to, to ground your awareness lightly where it's just barely a method. It's sort of just almost not a method anymore. But there it is, and it can steady you. And from that place, uh, see if you can just sit and be aware. I would say that uh, one way of talking about what the challenge of our practice is, just what are we doing, for me, this, I found this way of looking at it helpful, we're learning how to widen the range of our capacity to receive our own experience without separation, to enlarge our capacity, widen it, to receive our own experience without separation. To begin with, we have lots of choices. We're intimidated by many things that turn up in consciousness. Whoops, I'm out of here. We don't want that. And we're brilliant at finding ways of not dealing with it. We all know that. We have mastered that one, unfortunately. Okay, so that I would say the practice is gradually seeing the futility of that, that the escapes don't work, that they're exhausting, that they uh, bring sorrow finally, and discouragement. If you see that, that there is no escape, there's no escape from suffering. That may sound like bad news, but when I, the first time I realized that, it was a turning point in my practice. I didn't say there wasn't an end to suffering. Buddha says there is, so if I said that, I would be going against my boss. But the end can't come if you're escaping. That just makes sense. Where do you think it goes if you don't deal with it? It's still there. And it affects us in all kinds of ways, all kinds of strange ways. And so the escapes are many. Just out-and-out denial, out-and-out repression, out-and-out avoidance, postponement, hesitation. Setting up ideals. And that's an escape from now, from what is. Someone says, you know, you're arrogant. And then you decide, I think I'll be humble. And so then you set up that as a project, become Mr. Humility or Miss Humility. And of course, because you are, have something remedial involved, you're problem solving, then energy is tied up in, in that and you're not fully there for what's happening. To be fully there for what's happening, there's no past, there's no future. It's just what is happening there. Clear seeing has, it's not through the eyes of yesterday. And if you have some project as to where you want to make the clear seeing go, it's not clear seeing anymore. The kind of seeing I'm talking about is utterly simple, exquisitely simple. And what has dropped is all of our baggage. It's just what's happening. It's can we be with this? Can we, as just this, whatever that this is, can we be with that as just that? No more and no less. 
not extending it, not shortening it, not trying to fix it, not trying to use it to take us somewhere better. But we can't help ourselves. We're so conditioned to become something better than what we think we are that even when the mind gets quiet, you can find it, you can, if you listen carefully, as you get more quiet, you'll see it's got really sneaky, subtle kinds of becoming, whereas, oh, this silence is wonderful. How can I make it even more silent? How can I? And there's some movement towards getting somewhere with the silence, at which point it's noisy again. And so not only do we avoid from ob- in obvious ways, we have subtle ways of avoiding things. If, you have, if you're highly educated, have an intellectual bent, and particularly if you've read lots of uh, psychoanalytic, psychotherapeutic, Buddhist literature, you can have brilliant explanations for what's going on. And they're very satisfying. Just use Buddha's words. How could it be wrong? The Buddha said this. But you don't know it. You don't know it firsthand. And the joy or the fulfillment that comes from a brilliant explanation of it keeps you from ever really touching it, from ever really seeing it, and yet you feel as if you have. It's an interesting kind of self-deception. And self-deception meets us every step along the way in in self-knowing. Self-knowing is a challenge. It's a, a deep journey because we often have kept secrets from ourselves. And if you start, as Manindra said, sit down and take a look. It's, it's an invitation for what's there to come up. And whatever's there starts to turn up. And sometimes you have to have a cast iron stomach to see what's there. Many precious images just are broken into pieces. Self-images. Self-knowing is not a self-image, obviously. Self-knowing is seeing the self-image and seeing the price we pay for living as, a, as an image rather than as a person. So sometimes we avoid things because of fear. We're averse to them. There are also ways in which we dismiss things that come along. If you're sitting in this freeway, just being yourself, sitting and breathing and being with whatever turns up, a lot of what turns up is quite ordinary, and you've heard it and seen it before in one sense. And sometimes the mind can easily dismiss it as, oh, yeah, I've seen this already. I know this one. Uh, There must be something more interesting that can come up. Uh, Done this, got done, been there, done this, got the T-shirt, that kind of thing. It's not true. Dharma practice, uh, even something that you think you've seen before, may seem ordinary, can reveal great depths if you're able to stay with it. The whole point is to stay with what's there. And it's a great equalizer. We're with what's there because it is there. Just to hear chirp, chirp is not a waste of time. How many more chirp, chirp? What, who cares? You know, chirp, chirp. Bow, wow. In Korea, it's wang, wang, wang. I used to know four or five countries, what dogs sound like to those ears. I only remember two now, bow wow and wong wong wong. Early stages of senility are settling in. Maybe it wasn't worth remembering in the first place. 
So with practice, more and more we drop all of our judgments and dismissals and preferences and we learn how to receive our experience uh, to make friends with ourselves in more ordinary language, to just be ourselves from moment to moment. That's what that sitting practice is. And then the question, of course, do we have to keep doing this forever? Uh, no. Now, if you read the Buddha scattered throughout the suttas, the ones that I know, sometimes, and it's not unusual, he'll speak with a very heroic tone, kind of a warrior tone to what he's saying. Sort of like if something comes up, and let's say it's distracting or unpleasant or frightening, and you lose it, he doesn't say, okay, just drop it and uh, go to the breath, or do some metta, or go get a cup of tea. What he says is regain and reestablish mindfulness again and come back to it. So then I would urge you to not pamper yourselves, that you're stronger than you think. But be careful, because the Buddha also says, sometimes there are days when uh, what's happening uh, is unapproachable, or you've been doing, let's say, sitting choicelessly for half an hour and finally you just can't do it anymore. It's just a fact. You're going out of focus. You start psychologizing, looking at your watch and so forth. And then you look at that. In other words, you don't have to immediately go back to the breath. You can look at how you're having a hard time just sitting there. And sometimes that brings you right back. But if you conclude that it's a waste of your time, it's not fruitful, then the Buddhist uh, suggests to pick up a fruitful image, like it could be uh, uh, in... Uh, commentary since the time of the Buddha could be uh, a visualization of the Buddha in order to refresh yourself. Metta would do just as well, of course, just to bring something uh, encouraging into the mind. And if the breath does that for you, it does for me, then that can do it, or anything, really, a mantra, counting the breath. But then when you feel that you've settled down and calmed down, then what the Buddha says is drop that and then come back to where you are, you know, with what's there. So I would encourage you, that's what our practice is. It's moving back and forth between primarily breathing as an exclusive event and then everything, it, this, whatever is there. That's uh, what we're learning how to do. Now, what I meant by not to pamper yourself I've seen over the years, having listened to a fair number of minds and watched my own mind, sometimes we form these conclusions about ourselves. They can be subtle, like, I'm a very frightened person. I have a lot of fear. And a conclusion that I'll never be able to really look at fear, which, is, which for most of us, perhaps all of us, is a big one. Well, if you have that conclusion, if you make I can never look at fear, you won't. That's it. Finished. End of the story full stop. So how can we change that? I mean, uh, to some degree, we have to have some boldness, some daring, some willingness to go a little bit beyond what we think is our capacity. Again, using your own best judgment. And that's, to me, solid practice, learning how to guide yourself, how to give yourself an interview, seeing what you need, what's useful for you. And there is a time to pull back, for sure. But I I sometimes feel that 
if we're encouraged to any time something is a little off or a little bit unpleasant, to then switch into metta, the breath, walk, you know, the endless, uh, that can be overdone and can amount to a legitimate kind of avoidance. Okay, so our week will be spent practicing this way and each of you will be learning how to orchestrate between those two modes of practice. It's very important to understand, well, I don't know if it's very important to understand, but let's just say this way of looking at things has helped me. Life is here to be lived, obviously, and so I don't have to explain that. But if you've taken on the practice, if you're also a Vipassana yogi, the world exists in order to set, a, set you free. It's a very useful way of looking at things. That's why the world's here, to help you get free. Everything that happens to you has this liberating possibility in it. Everything. Someone you love dies, pain, sorrow, and in many ways uh, to experience uh, the 10,000 sorrows and are also the 10,000 joys. But from the point of view of a practitioner, of a yogi, they all have the potential of setting us free by the way in which we approach them. What's revolutionary, what's different, is that we approach what happens to us in a very, very different way. Everyone undergoes aging, sickness, and death. Everyone knows what pain is, and we will continue to know it. That doesn't change. But how we relate to what happens to us makes all the difference in terms of the quality of our life. And it's done moment by moment. It's being with the moment. You hear that, and it can become like a cliche, but it isn't. Okay, so please keep that in mind, that whatever happens to you on this retreat uh, can be used to liberate you. Turn it around. Don't feel like a victim, or if you feel like a victim, there's tremendous energy locked up in that kind of a self-conception. Practice with it, and the energy that's trapped in there becomes yours once you, uh, you look at it in a way that is neither holding or pushing away. In the few minutes that are left, I just want to begin to suggest something which I know Corrado and I feel strongly about, and I'm just going to give you a few hints. Most of you know this. Some of you have been here more than once, and you know that the, the emphasis in practice here is that uh, is of seamless. Practice is a seamless kind of activity. It's not just sitting and walking, as precious as, th as that is. Everything that we do here is meant to be received with, us, with dignity, appreciated. Nothing is trivial. And we have an opportunity during this week, because we have very little else to do, you know, to, to hear that and to take it seriously so that whatever your yogi job is, come to it with the same conviction that you'd come to a sitting. It's not less important. Dressing, washing, reactions that you have to people here. Of course, relationship is limited here, but it doesn't go away. Relationship is in our mind, in our heart, and it's a big one. So, it's a, in other words, it's a round of life that's going on here. It's not, 
any different from life anywhere in any country, anywhere on this planet. Everyone gets up, everyone sleeps, eats, cleans themselves. We're in the presence of others. We have a task to do. Our task is an unusual one. It's to do nothing and to look into ourselves much of the time. But see if you can enjoy it, too. It's not um, some grim, yes, I'm going to be mindful in all four postures. The Buddha said, I, that's really good. I'm very, I'll be a good Buddhist, a good practitioner. Enter into it with some, some joy, some zest. Uh, take it on fully. Uh, have respect for each thing you're doing. Um, the staff loves this instruction because it will make their life a lot easier. If you do your yogi job, get there on time, do it and shut up, unless you really need to talk. Sorry, I got a little carried away there. <laughs> to emphasize this, I'm going to read to you a report about how Mindfulness can become a way of life. It's not merely a technique. Although at first, of course, it feels artificial and stilted because we've not been living that way. But as you do it, little by little, uh, it becomes a way of living. And it doesn't mean you don't fall down or become distracted. Of course, we all do. But uh, it's something that if taken up as a practice with conviction uh, will uh, yields tremendous benefit. So when you're in the hall, just sit. When you're walking, just walk. Forget about sitting. When you're sweeping or chopping vegetables, just do that. Well, here's an extreme example, but I think it illustrates the importance. It comes from a report by an Indian woman named Vimla Thakkar, who was one of my teachers. She's still alive and uh, my relationship to her over many years is now limited to the male correspondence, but she used to come to Cambridge and, and uh, stay with me for a number of years, for a few weeks. Uh, quite an extraordinary woman. She's not Buddhist or anything else, for that matter. She's just, she's just Vimla Thakkar. Anyway, she talks about an experience she had, and it's, a, it's dramatic, but I think it's a way of emphasizing what has just been said. She's talking about one of her own teachers who practiced right till the end. He was dying. Here's what Vimala says. I recall a moment in the life of an elderly saint whom I held in the highest esteem, Saint Tukroji. He was suffering from cancer. I went to see him in his ashram. He was entirely, entirely illiterate. He knew as well as everybody else there that death was at hand. I had known since my childhood that he woke up at about three in the morning. He kept up the routine even when death was so near. He would tell the doctor and the nurse in perfect composure, put me in a sitting position, sponge the body, change the linen and the bedsheets, light up the lamp and the incense sticks, it is, it's time now for me to go into meditation. And this went on until the end. I paid another visit to his room. The nurse helped him to sit up. 
He was a Vishnava devotee on Pandari and in the Maharashtra. Such a devotee put some sandal paste on his forehead. That would be the so-called the third eye, what we call after he has taken the bath, the bath. And so he ordered the attendant to bring the sandalwood paste. When the unguents were brought, he asked the servant, where is the mirror? That he was given what to apply in the forehead, but no mirror. Do you think because I'm going to die it will do if I put the mark on my forehead in any haphazard way I like? Do bring the mirror also. As long as I'm alive, I'm thoroughly alive, and when I shall die, I shall die as thoroughly. At the moment, I'm very much alive and shall sing my prayer songs in full style. So he must have the mirror placed in front of him. He knew well enough that death was near. He knew the day and the time when it would arrive. There could not be a physical condition more critical than the one facing him at the time. He had shrunk to a mere skeleton. He would vomit blood. But, <clears throat> but what an air of grandeur was there in his manner when he said, as long as I'm alive, I'm fully alive. Put the mirror before me. And his grand manner, as he put the sandal paste on his forehead, was an entirely amazing sight. It shook me to the roots. He would not neglect the present moment because the hour of death was approaching. So surely you can pay attention to a pot. <laughs> Could we have a few moments of silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.